Welcome back, Nancy Hightower. It is a pleasure to have you on Evolving Element to talk about something new and revelatory. Um, today, we're going to be talking about monsters and, you know, just dissect that a little bit, maybe demystify some things um, for our audience here. And first and foremost, um, how have you been so far? How's your day going? Oh, well, well it hasn't been monstrous because I've been, I've been teaching um, writing for business, so that almost the opposite of monsters. Um, but we're in, we're in a monstrous time. We're in an age where everything's re, everything's being talked about in terms of monstrosity. So it's really interesting. I don't think I've ever heard the word monster being used so much as during a Trump administration. <laughs> oh, um, interesting. Yeah, That's something to note. Yeah, from yeah, many years I, later. It's 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 a really interesting term that's used on many different levels and different ways rhetorically. So which we'll jump into. I know the rhetoric has a big uh, foothold in this. Okay, so um, if you could just let people know a brief synopsis of who you are, uh, what you do, that'd be great. Oh yeah, okay, sure. So I'm an author um, and a teacher. I used to teach a class on the grotesque and carnivalesque in uh, University of Colorado Boulder. Um, I've written about monsters in this book, Monsters in the Classroom, um, hold that up which is great uh, resource for teachers on, on how to teach about monstrosity. Um, I also wrote the, um, the catalog essay for this great and, and somewhat battered um, art catalog called Cute and Creepy. Uh, so yeah, I used, to sort of, I used to write quite a bit about monstrosity um, and now teach all sorts of things like early American lit, um, digital storytelling, and so I've, I've sort of not laid it to rest, but I've put it aside for right now, even though I still try to keep my foot in the, the world of the monsters. Hence this podcast, right? Yes. Uh, so yes, many months ago, we actually had a, um, a different podcast just outlining your experiences and also the first couple of months, I think the first month of just dealing with a pandemic for the first time. So now it'll be kind of interesting to just jump into one topic and um, see where we go from there. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So in your cute, uh, cute and what's the creep, creepy? Creepy. Yes. Cute yeah. and creepy. Had a little tongue twister there. Cute and creepy. You wrote something called Revelatory Monsters. Mm -hmm. Destruction, destructive hybrids, the grotesque and pop surrealism. That's a mouthful. What? Can we just start with the subtitle first and maybe work our way down? Yeah. Uh, deconstructive hybrids, the grotesque and pop surrealism. Yes. Okay. Um, so the monsters that we're talking about, um, the idea of hybridity, hybridity can actually frustrate and paralyze language. And grotesque monsters in particular rob a person of language. They don't know what to call it, um, especially if there's no name for it, right? And, and what happens when our language is paralyzed, when we have no name for something, it, it takes away a bit of our power. It kind of resets us because oftentimes, right, the first thing they taught us, name your fear. Because if you name your fear, you have control of it. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have a monster you can't name, that monster has quite a bit more power over you as opposed to going, well, that's just a vampire. You're like vampire, garlic, cross, <laughs> right? You're like, what, what, what can I do to take out the vampire? Werewolf, silver bullet. Like you start doing these things of what do you have to combat the monster, um, the less you can ascertain what a monster is or what mm -hmm. makes it monstrous, the more I think um, it resets who you are. Also, it's just even like sort of your, your subjectivity. 
Um, and the, grot the grotesque monster in particular um, frustrates uh, someone's language because I would say it, it um, takes that to a, a level that also brings in horror and humor um, in, equal, in equal parts, right? So that, that paralysis is even more. Um, the mm -hmm. grotesque monster going, okay, where does that even fit? Um, the fact that you can never name a grotesque monster, that there is no space for a grotesque monster. There, there, we still don't even know what it does. Um, and then how pop surrealism kind of, I would say, resides in between all those things. Because the, the pop is fun and it's marketable <laughs> and it's part in capitalism. The truly grotesque actually only exists on the boundary. So the, the truly grotesque, when people say grotesque, what they're usually meaning is unsightly or obscene. And the grotesque with the capital G is actually something that is not marketable because it will always cause uncomfortability. Does that make sense? Like you will, you never really want to experience the grotesque because mm -hmm. whatever it, it is there to question whatever boundaries you have. Um, whatever boundaries you have, that's where the grotesque exists. Does that make sense? So whatever you have seen as other, the grotesque goes, I'm going to show you how you are tied to that. Actually, I'm going to show you the relationship you have to that. Yeah, right? So it's not something that you you actually like because it makes you acknowledge perhaps connections that you'd rather not have. Ooh, I see. So that's, that's its, is it safe to say that's, that's, that's its function or purpose? Yes. Okay. And once it, is it ever a point where it leaves that? Does it, does it cross the boundary and it just disappears and is no longer... Yeah, that's actually okay. what happens is once, once that boundary disappears, so does the grotesque. Wow, interesting. Yeah. And is that something easily achievable? Is that take, I mean, that's a, that's a vague question, but is this something that can be something like maybe like Stephen King's It, where they all come together and they fight off this, 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 this monster, you can say, right? Is that something that's possible? Well, see, that's not, that's not the grotesque, though. I, yeah. I don't think anything in Stephen King is grotesque mm -hmm. at all. Because it's a name of a monster. You have, it's a killer clown. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not like, it's not like you're like, ah. Oh. Um, you know, and I used to show things like Santa Sangre's, uh, like Jodorowsky's Santa Sangre or Lars von Trier's Antichrist, which literally people were just like, what just happened? Whereas with Stephen King, Stephen always, ha you know, has um, this, it's just a very, known trajectory does that make sense now Stephen King has I love the way the uncanny plays out in his work um all the time I, I love the fact in his books and then in the vision you know in the movie representation of film adaptations of his work sometimes less so but they they try to get the the uncanny to to work there too um but no that's um the, the grotesque again has you uncovered deeper psychological boundaries, I would say. Mm. That's just a bunch of kids banding together. And the way they do it is really disturbing and also misogynistic. I think the little girl has sex with all the boys. Yes. And, the, and so that's, that's just, I mean, how much of that's just misogyny and sexism, you know mm. what I'm saying? Like, and bordering on pedophilia. So <laughs> I'm going to say no, that's maybe okay. not yeah. That's not the best example. No, no. Yeah. So I am amateur, as you can see. <laughs> so I guess, I guess what I was alluding to was that if this is an experience that one is reading, right, or one is um, realizing, I guess maybe there's a process where maybe one looks at something or reads something and doesn't notice it right away. But once they do, once they're able to name it, 
then that's when it um, transcends to something maybe less, uh, more benign, I would say. Um, it, it, that's if that happens. I don't know if that always happens in that case. Yeah, yeah. again, once the boundary is erased or moved, uh, it changes the nature of what is seen as grotesque. Wow, that's interesting. Because um, usually like things, like like this cup, for example, we'll, oh, can't see it because it brings me, but it will always be a cup. Unless I melt it down, but it will still have the elements of it being a, once a cup. So in this sense, it almost evaporates. It just loses its its oomph, its its energy, or something of that nature. It almost takes a different. I wouldn't say disappear necessarily, because it might be new for somewhere else, but not for the person who first encountered it. So well, I, that's a very concrete thing. We're talking about aesthetics here, like the grotesque. Mm -hmm exists in terms of aesthetics you aesthetics, know okay. monsters it only exist in terms of abstraction you're not going to pull out frankenstein in the way you pick up a cup and so that's part of this mm -hmm. idea of where the grotesque can happen kind of like the uncanny doesn't happen in real life the uncanny only happens in literature and film even freud will say that like he's like it's very rare that you have un that kind of uncanny that gothic in real life so I should say that this is within the realm of aesthetics that we're talking about, in the realm of literature, art, where you can manipulate how things are seen. So that's important to, to, to talk about, the fact that it exists in these particular mediums, right? Yep. It, it exists. Those are mediums that were, is a tradition now of these mediums, right? Any modern uh, mediums, would you say that they also exist too? Like, would it be fair to say that maybe a newer medium, say, uh, I don't know, social media or something along the lines of uh, a YouTube video. Is it possible it could live in those spaces too as well? Those spaces have been so co-opted by capitalism. I don't know <laughs> okay. because so much of them are used to transmit information um, I guess it would still reside in the world of like art and then those are platforms that can transmit the art or the film itself mm. but you know where you're showing like a grotesque you know film so those are like tools the, the, in and of themselves they're not grotesque they're just a tool the tool and yeah. yeah and in and of themselves most of the time like especially Twitter right now is very political so, yeah, I would say, like, I don't, like, TikTok's not grotesque. TikTok is, uh, and also they're used for satire. There's a lot of satire with mm -hmm. um, Twitter. And I would say that the difference also with the grotesque is the grotesque um, indicts everyone. Satire indicts the person you want to make fun of. And it gives mm. you an intellectual, I used to explain this with my students. Satire gives you an intellectual pat on the back, like we're so much better. We're so much better. The grotesque is like, no, we're all stupid. Like we're all in this. Like we all keep mm -hmm. something in play, in place. So that's important. That's important. And yeah. I guess it's also something a matter of of seeing, processing, and then coming to the realization of that this is the case. Um, is it? Is is? Does the grotesque have the? Does it push people to maybe? I don't want to use this word, but maybe like change or maybe see the, a larger picture within something. Does it push people or motivate people to do anything different in their lives? 
would you say? I don't know, maybe one can argue that, I'm not too sure. That, um, I guess I would, I would have to ask my students of like, I mean, a lot of my students said that it was their favorite class and that it changed them, but they never like gave me a report of like, and this is what it did. I, you know, I went into this major instead of this major. Um, mm -hmm. I would say in my own life, it's changed the way I look at things that I read voraciously to see what it is that I'm not seeing mm -hmm. and hearing and whatever my own boundaries are, I'm continually pushing them and going, why do I see X as bad? Or why do I see Y as bad? And um, yeah, definitely trying to always make sure that whatever boundaries I have are valid ones. Because so many boundaries are created by what we were taught. Mm -hmm. What we're taught by our socioeconomic status, what we're taught by white privilege. Oh my goodness, think of how many boundaries you're taught just simply by, by having white privilege and thinking those, those are natural when they're not, they're artificial. Hmm. So boundary challenging, I think, is something that we all need to do in whatever ways we can. I guess the grotesque is one way that, that I understood that it helps me kind of navigate hmm those kind of rhetorical, um, rhetorical lanes, maybe. That is so cool. Like this is, this is, this is deep for a lot of people. So I just want to bring it back out a little bit. It's almost right. like looking like, like looking in your own mirror, you see what you yeah. see what's in front of you. You don't see anything else but yourself. Um, and anyone can have a different interpretation upon which they read or, or what they're experiencing for themselves. Cause they're, like you said, what they've come up with might be different than what you've come up with. So uh, I can see one thing and you can see something else, which is interesting. Um, it, especially in art, as you know, it's always up for interpretation. Maybe the, the artist or the writer or the creator, just put it that way, um, intended it to be this, but now it's in public domain. So now it's 10,000 million other things. So that takes on its own um, experience as, uh, I guess, as a creator looking back and saying, wow, these people saw different things. This is amazing. Okay. So, all right, going back to Revelatory Monsters, thank you for answering those questions and I will ponder them after we finish. I'm just gonna read a little expert, if that's okay, yeah. of a section here that you have um, in this. It says, Jeffrey Jerome Conan argues that as a construct and a projection, the monster exists only to be read. The monstrum is, oh, I hope I say this right, et etymologically, <laughs> that yeah, which reveals, <laughs> which reveals that which warns like a letter on the page, the monster signifies something other than itself. What sets up this kind of fulcrum, I have to ask you what that means, in society itself, the two precise laws of nature as set forth by science are gleefully violated in the freakish compilation of a monster's body. A mixed category, the monster resists any classification built on hierarchy or merely a binary opposition, demanding instead a system allowing uh, phone, uh, polyphony, I have actually what that is again, mixed response, mixed response, difference and sameness, repulsion and attraction, that's a mouthful, and resistance to integration. These kinds of juxtapositions are what form the definition of the grotesque, which is kind of what you summed up before um, a little bit. Um, can you speak to that, that passage there and maybe we can unbox this a little bit? Um, yeah, so he's going back to a time and <clears throat> especially in the 1500s and the 1600s when 
literally monsters were meant to reveal God's wrath or God's um, wonder. They were seen as wondrous, especially like in the broadsides at this time. And so they weren't seen as evil, scary, like superstition. That, that wasn't necessarily the only category. I mean, they were still used in that way. They mm. were used to describe the new world. Um, you have to think at this point, you know, Columbus, and that's how they were used to describe um, indigenous peoples uh, when they, the word came back and you saw these strange drawings, um, you know, and so it was used to mythologize. It was used to mythologize the other, what they would see as the other, what they would see as barbaric savages. You know, again, that's the language that like Columbus will put on people. And um, you'll see like in Caliban. So there's that kind of monstrosity, which is this otherness. But at the same time, there was this this idea of the monster as being uh, wonder and these broadsides of the wondrous body. And then in art, you saw these creations of monsters to satirize, like especially with Luther and the Nine Thesis, like they would satirize Luther, they would satirize the Pope, they would, you know, the wars of religion, they would create these really... <laughs> bizarre and i sent you you know like a, a slideshow there's this, you know the, the the most bizarre art i think i've ever seen came out of the 1500s in terms of just what you weren't on lsd like how did you get this you know um and then you look at you know like bosch's garden of earthly delights which if ever you look at it like in detail you're just like what you know what was this person thinking um but but this idea that that it's meant to show us something and, and, and what Jeffrey is arguing is that they still show us something, right? That it's it's about this mixture and it's a mixture that shouldn't have happened. And so if you think about it so often, we're all about the right combination of things. And what a monster does is it mixes those things up of like, if you're a lion, why do you have a fish tail? You know, like like what's, <laughs> what's going on there? You know, that kind of chimera, um, that anything that automatically disturbs our categorization disturbs us because we think about this we our psychology the way i used to explain this is our psychology is built on categorization like you say i'm not a banana you know you know like i like the banana is other than me and that's how you that's how you kind of differentiate yourself between you and the world is self and other mm -hmm. so think then about something that frustrates categorization when that's what our world is built on mm -hmm. yes, right very structures Right, you have like folders with certain names on them and like our whole system is built on it. So anything that frustrates categorization is is a chance for, again, these different sort of, I would say rhetorical moves, this chance to think about things differently. If you're always to kind of, so is, I'm just even thinking of like children on the, on the you know, children mm -hmm. separated and in cages. For one set of people, they're, they're thinking illegal immigrant, right? That's what they're gonna, that's their categorization. Mm -hmm. So coming at it and just going, no, they're children, that's not actually going to wrench them free of that categorization. I would argue that it would take the grotesque to break them out of that that rigidity that boundary that they have around them mm -hmm. like that's that's the place for a grotesque thing to happen because logic won't get them that's interesting so logic is not the it, it's not the tool in this case to, to extract it right no i see this all the time on facebook everyone's going children in cages children in cages and you know i would look and i would stalk my ex-evangelical friends you know mm -hmm. and and see how they're just like illegal immigrants illegal immigrants criminal coming over you know and just 
the way that this logic of just, you know, kind of trying to talk, it's like, okay, that's, that's a move for like some artist to come in and, mm -hmm. and do something to almost, I, I would say, violate the boundary. That's the thing is the grotesque is a violation. It is. It's a mm -hmm. violation. It's a, a it's a very violent thing. Logic mm -hmm. in and of itself is not violent. Within itself, but practice it could be, like you said, like someone tweeting out something like that, or I mean, that's a very vague, that's a very um, benign form of it, but it tends to lead in that direction a little, maybe more. But like uh, the grotesque is an aesthetic does something on an pathos. It, that's what it does. Actually, the grotesque shuts down logic. That's what it. That's what I used to argue about. Is that it used to sh it, the grotesque and the monster can shut down logic and only allow pathos to rise up. Mm. Um, but what I argued in this piece is that it allows paradigms to be destroyed. And that's what that. you need the paradigm that says that the child is an illegal immigrant. To do, mm. You need to destroy that paradigm. And I think mm. we need to start talking about paradigm destruction more than logic. Interesting. Can we talk about paradigms for a second? Is it more yeah. of a, a switch or is it an actual destruction of it? Meaning that it's... Okay, destruction. And when you say destruction, I just want to make sure I'm super clear. Do you, are you referring to like it being obsolete or is it dissected so people can see the <laughs> issues with it? No. Uh, in, in, in the, um, the, the critical theory that I'm talking about, um, other authors, and I actually quote Harpam saying that, that, <coughs> sorry. No problem. Um, I'm going to like cough one more time. Go for it. I'll take I'll take some water with you too. We talk on Zoom for hours at a time. Ten thousand hours. Um, that it actually has to create um, the the complete obliteration of a paradigm. That, that the paradigm just doesn't work for you anymore. Um, and so, and that within that, you then you have to create like a new way of ascertaining the world or reality. And that's why, I think that's why my students felt like the grotesque was so violent. I mean, I've, I once had a student say, I knew I was going to have to do intellectual work in this class. She was like, but I wasn't aware of all the emotional work I would have to do. Oh, like you said, the pathos is involved in that, right? Yeah. Interesting. So how does, as a teacher, how does one even prepare for a class like that? You, you came in thinking one thing, but I'm sure as you did it, you realized I could probably tweak this later on. Yeah, I, I used to I used to not do trigger warnings this before I quit teaching the class before trigger warnings came in. Um, and I kind of saw that as my college was getting more conservative, I wouldn't be allowed to teach this class anymore. I think I just warned them that they would, they were going to, I basically I think I warned them with like, whatever you hold in your deepest heart, whatever secret you have, the grotesque is going to unlock that and just be ready. Right. <laughs> and then I would just give them the number of the counseling center. The counseling center knew me by name because I would send so many of my students over there because they would just, and so I was like, I maybe, and I think maybe I, that's why I also stopped teaching it. It took a toll on me eventually that I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I just want to be like a normal teacher. A like, normal like, teacher. <laughs> you will, yeah, you have like the most normal me as a teacher. Yeah, I got I got the American literature portion. Yeah, you got, yeah, you totally got normally. Yeah, <laughs> which even for me was 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 new. Uh, like I mentioned in our last podcast, uh, we 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 never covered Native American writers or or slave um, sl uh, former slaves. We never 
So to yeah. me, it was refreshing. And um, it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it was holistic. So I, I think that's what uh, I, I missed out a lot of. But your class brought me back to that world. So it was great. It was nice to know, oh, look, these voices exist too. So, right. yeah, yeah, so hence podcasting with you. <laughs> it all was seated back there in that classroom. So I love your opening with with this piece, and the reason why I'm harping on it so much or just emphasizing it is because there's a lot of golden nuggets um, in here. So the first line you start off is, we need monsters in our lives. Why that line? Why? I think you kind of summed it up, but if you can make it even more clear for anybody that's listening, why do you feel like we need monsters in our lives? They're scary. Nancy, why would we need these things? I know I'm like like reading back over them and kind of going because I, I I said it's like so well that we like to fear them to run hiding and uh-huh. I like this whole idea that they're prophets. Um, they are they're prophetic and we need we always need prophets. Every culture needs prophets, right? Mm-hmm. Every culture needs to warn them of what they're doing wrong. And the monster goes, "Hey, like I mean think think about Frankenstein." Yes. Mm-hmm. What te- what happens with technology when we don't think of the ethics of the technology that we're creating? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that Mary Shelley was like getting that right during the Industrial Revolution. You know what I mean? Her just going ding ding. Um, you know, before AI, like the, these mm-hmm. things we should be thinking about. So, yeah, we've always we've always needed monsters to to be. Um, we don't always know what to do with them mm-hmm. and some people have been rearranging them so like i have a friend Mar- uh, maria davana headley who wrote um the mirror wife and mm-hmm. she rewrote Be- uh grendel's mother and she just rewrote beowulf too she rewrote beowulf um to question sort of like the toxic masculinity that she felt was like embedded mm-hmm. in 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 quite a bit of the poem about you know and mm-hmm. what happened with the women you know and so um, monsters are fruitful even past monsters we can we can play with them and we can kind of go mm-hmm. you know why why were they created and you know, why was Grendel created what function did they serve and what function do they still serve you know everything can be updated which is why you're also seeing revisions or retellings of like Circe, you know, and of Greek mythology too. Mm. So it's, it's really interesting the way people are redoing. Um, in fact, uh, uh, Victor Laval just did a retelling of Frankenstein and in a graphic novel called Destroyer. Destroyer, interesting. Yeah. Which I would show you a picture of, except that it's up in my office. Not a problem. It was Pre- just pre-COVID. far, far away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Pre> <laughs> Thank you for dropping those gems. I'm definitely going to check that out when I listen back to the recording. Um, this is interesting because not only do you have new monsters that are always arising because of the times are always changing, but now you have we have the opportunity to actually look through the archives of history and look to see what was monstrous back then and maybe take it, um, see it from a different angle this time around, which is, which is a really, it's cool that it's not just left in some um, museum somewhere or it's left in the dust, so to speak. And it's, it's still being revisited because it's still um, relevant to us to this day. Yeah. So if you like, if we could, if we can pick some monsters that were told to us that were monsters, right? Um, yeah. If we could just go through each one and kind of just give like a snapshot of why they might have been created, um, okay. maybe 
really quick. Maybe we could do a little trivia. Okay, we'll see if I can. If I Let's can. try it. We'll try it. I I never done this before, so this would be fun to to All start right. off. All right. So the first one that comes up to mind, you said vampires. Yeah. I've heard vampires be something more of like a a, a capitalist predator. Is that is that why it was created, or is it something totally different? It had to do with garlic. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, they they existed <laughs> definitely in folklore, and I haven't researched like the folklore enough. Do you know Dracula was by Bram Stoker? I read was cre created in part because he had a crush on Walt Whitman, and so there's a lot of sensuality and like the whole blood sucking. Oh yeah, no. And I discovered that just at the end of my last early American Lit class. I, every early American Lit class I find out like new things, and so I mean, just even think about like Dracula. I mean, where the places that they bite you is like on the neck or on the thigh, like very, like very sensual, right? Um, right. Wasn't like the arm those, or something. Yeah, those are, are preternatural. They're not supernatural. They're not like ghosts. They're they're like um, werewolves. So they're mm -hmm. like they're in between the supernatural, like demons, angels, whatever, and then the humans. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I don't know. It's I don't know enough about vampires, like European mythology, to know like where they came from. Um, right. But the yeah. general the general idea of them is that they they bite you they take your blood they that's how they, they thrive off of host that's the the general understanding I would maybe possibly maybe in the states possibly I don't know if that's yeah well I'm gonna create like more vampires yeah um, vampires zombies and werewolves I never really dealt with them and in fact uh, Stephen Graham Jones who actually writes a lot of horror and has and writes a lot about monsters. He had, he taught the zombie class. So he taught the zombie class at CU and I taught the grotesque class. And oftentimes we shared students. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky duh. Um, and he actually has a book about werewolves and I forgot the name of it. And I'm so sorry, Stephen, if you see this. Um, but um, yeah, so, so those, I think there, there's a sensuality there too, um, as, as well as, but again, you can fight them, right? You, you have some garlic, you have so a steak. Bowler, right. Yeah, you can destroy them. Like, and that's the whole thing is usually you win out against, mm -hmm. they're not indestructible. I see. So with the art, the pop surrealism that you mentioned before, does it always give like the audience, like the silver bullet or the steak or the garlic? Or is it something just there as a mirror to just look within oneself? Pop surrealism is like a different thing. Like mm. that's more of having fun with with the monsters and, okay. and, and the cute and the creepy, so that they're like, oh, this look a little weird. And if you know, if you look through that that catalog, they're some of them is like really disturbing. Like, and I love it. Um, but they're playing with it and also kind of showing like the nature of like human and animal. Um, you know. Yes. So I would say pop surrealism doesn't really play with vampires that much vampires are very they're the gothic the so vampires usually have a castle say so the you know the gothic that took over in the you know gargoyles maybe yeah 19th 19th century you know you have dark and stormy night woods ghosts right and that's mm -hmm. where you have the vampires and the and the werewolves pop surrealism is a bit more light um, yeah. like colorful and definitely pop surrealism is like a 21st century you know mm -hmm. uh, a 20th century phenomenon um, whereas vampires they're never really quite they're never really updated 
They will be stuck in the past. Well, I'm just saying there's only, I mean, I mean, you can get on a smartphone, but it doesn't help. The blood sucking never goes away. Like, it's never like, you know, the the only thing, you have them sometimes sparkly. I'm thinking about like, you know, the, um, not the living dead. Is the living dead vampire? No. No, that's zombies. Torchwood? No, not Torchwood. Um, thinking of, well, you know, you have, um, oh, what's the I'm thinking of ones? Who are the sparkling people? Twilight. Twilight. <laughs> yeah, you know, Twilight, you have the vampire diaries. Like, mm. like in, they're always still doing the same thing. Right. So they, they lost their, they lost their emphasis a long time ago, uh, as far as the warning, possibly. I don't know. Well, I mean, no, I mean, you can still do it. It's just, I don't, yeah. I don't know if anybody finds this, like, scary they're more seductive seductive than scary right i guess in order to make it scary they would have to find a nuance they would have to find something maybe novel you know just to change it up yeah. a little bit which could challenge anybody to do that that'd be great i'm looking forward to it um because i we a reason why i i wanted to have this conversation with you just just so you have an idea um uh, i was talking to my friends because we we're gonna have a halloween party uh, a movie night and we were all going back and forth from what was scary. And everyone had something totally different. Some people said ghosts, supernatural. Some people talked about Jurassic Park as being something scary to them. And I was trying to piece together, like, interesting. We all have different things that make us scared, you know? And, and everyone's like, no, this is the scariest. And it was like a competition, like, who could find the most scariest thing? And one of the movies that I came across with only because one of my friends had suggested another movie by the same director was um there was one with psycho and that sparked me to think of the other movie he made which was birds and i remember being terrified of birds uh specifically like crows and stuff because i always i always thought that crows were like the movies so i would always think that they'll come and attack me or something like the school kids coming out of the of the school and they're all getting tortured by these birds so it was it's interesting because even to this day i still feel slightly afraid of some something pecking my eyes out so yeah so i i guess long tangent here but i guess i was thinking of writers from your i don't know if we ever covered i think we covered edgar Allan poe in your class if i'm not incorrect there would he fall under that grotesqueness if that's a word um edgar Allan poe no no uh, he had a couple of things like hot frog but in general he always was looking at i mean he was looking at alcoholism he was looking at um insanity depression um it and reading him doesn't like really disturb the boundaries of self and other mm -hmm. um and and nor does nor does hitchcock you know when you think about the birds it's not like you came away a better person it's not like it, it's not like you can, you didn't come away thinking in what ways am i destroying nature like the mm -hmm. truly grotesque would have made you think in what ways are we destroying birds which we are like the, uh -huh. like the birds are losing that game and instead we see them still as the enemy or as you know things to be destroyed um mm. and good point good point yeah so that's that's not i'm trying to think if there's any i just thought of something while you were talking how about oh. documentaries as a as a as a form to to i know that it's information but in yeah. a sense you kind of feel like oh i want to do something different after this i want to go like i don't know vote or, or or maybe get an electric car or something i don't know but <laughs> it's like that that's documentaries are working both on pathos and logic but they're doing it through categorization they're saying these are these are um 
What's the word? Oh, okay. I endangered is the word. No, <laughs> I'm stupid at this point. Like you know, in endangered. But again, see, here's where logic does not save us. We know that animals are endangered. We know that birds are endangered. We know that there's climate change. And what are we really, we, we have not stopped the tipping point yet. Based on my reading, I don't think we've stopped the tipping point yet. Logic is not saving us. No. Logic says, should say that we stop climate change and all the documentaries in the world are not making us give up fossil fuels. And so what, you know, in some ways, I think maybe because I have students involved in the in the climate, like the environmental here in New York City, and I think like when they bring a boat into the middle of Times Square, they're thinking, "What grotesque can we thing can we do to decategorize what's going?" You know what I mean? They're, mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the not the violence of protests, but how protests can. I would say jam that categorization because we are not doing enough with our logic. Mm. If, if anything, we need more real monsters to come on board. We need artists and writers to, and I would say some of them are, are doing a good job. I just need to read up on, on them and what they're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. So this is this is cool because part of the whole demystifying things are just you know uh, giving a, a, a different perspective on something right that the general household thinks monsters are bad, but mm -hmm. in this particular case, monsters seem like our uh, avatar. You can say for change, for our avatar for something that brings out something positive versus something negative. I don't know if there is an opposite of grotesque. I, I mean, maybe maybe there is, but I don't have a name for it. But grotesque has seemed to be put into this box. It's, it's been categorized as, oh, that's, that's gross or that's inhumane and we should just leave it alone and those artists are weird and uh, I, I couldn't be caught looking at things like this. They might think I'm crazy. So it's nice that we're, we're, we're coming to a different uh, way of looking at this because it can't just be all those things because with, like you said, grotesque within itself it, that's not its function. It doesn't. It's not for that reason to just be put away or categorized. It's there to disrupt, and it's there to show you something a little larger than you know what you've been clinging on to this whole time. Mm -hmm. So that's hard. I mean, logically, that's hard to like just like pull yourself off like slime. You know, just take off. You know, like like Spider Man when he gets caught in you know the the, the black goo and he turns into that alien thing, but. It, it almost seems like that and you know it's it's like you said it's um prof what's the word prophet not prophetic prophetic because yeah. you have this experience and you mentioned lsd before i don't you know it, these people were doing these things most likely without lsd but they got to that point where they are drawing things are like out there out there and maybe this conversation is maybe can help people see that there the out there isn't something to be feared it's something to be maybe uh, looked into maybe researched a little bit more maybe it's something that um we need in our lives because we're always trying to get rid of the monsters and maybe we should bring them back you know just to remind us why you know we do need fear or why we need to be concerned about certain things um because this comfort zone that we're in, um, like you said, we don't know if we're not passing that, if we're not going to be able to reverse that tipping point that you spoke about earlier. Yeah. So 
that's my two cents. But um, is there anything else that you would like to leave us with um, that maybe might help or maybe might um, have this conversation be something that other people could talk about with their friends, say, I don't know, over Halloween uh, movie night or something like that? Oh. I would say that, again, you know, the monsters that you enjoy are, that's just the, that's the modified monster. That's the, <laughs> that's the fun monster. It's the monsters that really disturb you. I think reading, reading more books of, of monsters and like reading Stephen Graham Jones or Maria Davana Headley or Victor Laval. And he has a new book called Changeling too, right? Changeling, Changeling which is, again, about monstrosity that that those authors are looking at again the way monsters can be um instructive right and and there's so there's like there's the grotesque which means gross and there's the truly grotesque that means how to, how to change something how to disrupt so there's monsters that are like i i want to go enjoy that movie like freddy krueger <laughs> and that's great but then you know, what movies are there about monstrosity, which is, you know, why I used to teach, you know, the movies that I taught. And, and, and those movies were violent, you know, and I would have to kind of go in with like trigger warnings going, okay, if you need to walk out during these movies, you can, mm -hmm. because you didn't leave feeling good, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you, those movies did something. Those movies do something to you. Uh, it's not a it's not a good scare. A good scare is not the grotesque. Um, mm -hmm. A good grotesque means you are disturbed and shifted. Like something starts to shift. Mm -hmm. What know? was one of those movies? Uh, just curious. <laughs> well, I used to teach uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist, um, <clears throat> which I used to teach as an updated version of the Yellow Wallpaper about. Lo just logic and and a kind of certain form of seeing the world and and um and and how also her logic is is warped because of his logic and, and it's about misogyny and i would use probably the terms now toxic masculinity um and it's looking at toxic masculinity and it's set in the natural world where bizarre things start happening um, or i would say Jodorowsky's uh, Sansa Sangre um, about violence within a family and, and parents and how does one how does one deal with that? How does one look at redemption? What does redemption look like? And that's maybe an interesting question of what does redemption look like in a culture like ours? What does redemption look like now? How do you redeem a nation? How do you redeem a nation built on slavery and the near annihilation of indigenous peoples? what does redemption look like and and in some ways i think maybe the grotesque helps us access that because you have to destabilize so many things so many of people's like we're coming up on thanksgiving you know what kinds of conversations are going to happen about that you know what i'm saying like yeah. um so in some ways a lot more violence has to happen and when i say violence i'm going to say like this emotional violence needs to happen this logical violence needs to happen not you know, um, yeah. something because you know there's 500 kids now that can't find their parents. Like mm -hmm. there's some aesthetic that has to be able to hold that tragedy or or show it or do something. So in this next year, we're all going to be figuring out 
we're all going to have to figure out ways that language starts dealing with this. Mm. With that, that was said, a heavy answer. I'm with sorry. That said, <laughs> with that said, Nancy, we, we okay. appreciate it. Um, that was great. Uh, I, I, I challenge anyone who's listening, and not challenge, but I, I, I put forth to anyone who is interested to to have these conversations at home, um, or you know, it hopefully doesn't ruin any relationships that you have or anything. But um, if it does, then maybe, maybe that's what was supposed to happen. I don't know. I don't want to get that dark. But maybe I should. Maybe having this conversation should get a little darker. Um, and yeah, I, I like the fact that you brought up humor. It's part of this as well. So if you are going to do this, hopefully you can have some fun with it. Um, and maybe give a trigger warning <laughs> before you decide to do this at Thanksgiving. Um, and yeah, um, thank you so much, Nancy. I'm rambling at this point. I have- It was really talking to you. Yeah, this has been great. I want to honor your time and also get you away from the screen. I know you've been on the screen a long time. Yeah, um, it's been a full day on the screen, so I might go for a long walk in the rain. Please, we enjoy your pandemic, NYC. Uh, shout out to your Instagram uh, for always keeping us entertained with your storytelling. So anyone's interested, please, by all means, check it out. She's amazing.